0: Welcome to Curbside Consults, where we take a deeper dive into medical topics and publications from the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Dr. Angela Castellanos, and I'm an editorial fellow at the NEJM. Today, we're going to take a broader look at an important topic that reaches across medical specialties, the evolving role of prescription opioids in the opioid overdose epidemic. As many current medical students and residents have been training to become physicians, an opioid overdose epidemic has been raging in the United States, changing the way medical professionals approach and manage pain. I finished my residency almost one year ago, and it's hard for me to remember a time before the emphasis on non-opioid treatments for pain control, opioid consent forms, and prescription drug monitoring programs, although that era was not too long ago. Joining us today to help us put this into context is Dr. Scott Hadlan. He's assistant professor of pediatrics at Boston University School of Medicine and a faculty member at the Graykin Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So today we're going to discuss the role of prescription opioids in the opioid overdose crisis, literature describing recent physician opioid prescribing trends in the U.S., efficacy of public health efforts, and approaches to pain management for trainees. So we have a lot to cover today. So first, let's talk about the role of prescription opioids in the opioid overdose crisis. I'm a physician, and I have the power to prescribe narcotics. So I want to know, what can you tell us about how physician prescription habits have affected the overdose epidemic as we know it today?
1: Well, it's been a bit of a moving target. So there have actually been three, and now people are saying four, waves to our current what we're calling opioid overdose crisis. Um, And I'll talk a little bit later on about how, if i given the opportunity, about how it's it's really not just an opioid overdose crisis, but really multiple substances are involved. Um, But to talk about these different waves of the opioid crisis, the first wave, which ran roughly from about the turn of the century until sometime sort of between 2012 and 2013, was really marked by a a really dramatic rise in the number of physicians who are prescribing opioids, including at escalating doses and using high-risk compounds like long-acting opioids or using opioids in sort of long-duration treatment. And that was really what sort of drove the oversupply of opioids that has contributed to this problem. Our opioid prescribing peaked um, in about 2010 to 2012. 2012 was kind of the the highest level that we ever reached and then subsequently declined. And it's actually no coincidence that right along that same time, people started turning to heroin as a uh, cheaper, more potent alternative. And so the second wave of the opioid crisis, really beginning in about 2013, um, was really marked by this rise in heroin. And what we've been dealing with more recently since about 2014-2015 is an even cheaper, even more readily available supply of highly potent opioids, and that's fentanyl, which has really infiltrated a lot of drug markets. And some people, and I think this is correct, are even talking about a fourth wave of the opioid overdose crisis, and this is actually a wave not marked by opioids so much as it is by other drugs such as methamphetamine that are really being wrapped up into um, the number of overdoses that we're seeing. So, you know, I think opioids still remain an important issue, even though I just finished saying that heroin and fentanyl and increasingly methamphetamine and other compounds are actually more important uh, because they seem to be contributing to more overdose deaths now. It's important to keep in mind that for many people, a prescription opioid is still the very first opioid that they come across before going on to a pathway where they use other opioids like heroin or fentanyl. Um, And this is particularly true for young people, the population with which I work.
0: Mm, Okay. Right, because you're a pediatrician. That's right. Primarily you see adolescents.
1: I do, yeah.
0: Okay. So you mentioned that um, in the waves of the opioid crisis in 2012 was basically the peak of prescription opioids. Is that correct? Right. So that is a nice transition into this paper I wanted to bring up. So this NEJM article published in March of 2019, actually the... um, study period starts in 2012. So for our listeners, the paper we'll talk about is initial opioid prescriptions among U.S. commercially insured patients from 2012 to 2017 by Zhu and colleagues. And so this paper, if you could summarize the finding of the article for us, um, I think it speaks to a very um, specific time, as you were talking about, in the opioid crisis.
1: That's right. Yeah. So thinking about the period that's transpired since that peak in 2012 and the decline that's happened since this study really kind of got into the deep and granular to help us understand exactly what was going on. And again, the purpose of this study is really to understand um, these initial opioid prescriptions, the idea being here that, again, for many people, the first opioid they ever encounter is from a prescription. And so this is really a a study focused on understanding an initial opioid prescription for opioid-naive patients. And so the way that the authors conducted this study was to use health insurance claims data from Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is the largest insurance claims database in the United States. So it gives us a comprehensive understanding of what's going on in the commercial market. They included all individuals 15 years and older with this type of insurance and came up with a sample of more than 86 million people of whom just over 10 million received a first-time opioid prescription. And what the authors found is that consistent with what we knew was going on with the national sort of uh, population-level data, the incidence of a first-time opioid prescription declined significantly from 2012 to 2017. But they found some interesting things that I'll get to in a second. But just to give some numbers as to what this decline looks like, in July 2012, about 1.6% of all opioid-naive individuals had a first-time opioid prescription during that month. By the end of the study period, December of 2017, this had declined uh, to about 0.8%. So basically, the, the number of first-time opioid prescriptions among naive patients really declined by about half over this relatively short period of time. And the number of doctors, and this is where um, I think the study builds nicely on what we knew going on at the population level, the number of doctors who gave out a first-time opioid prescription declined. So you saw fewer and fewer doctors giving out prescriptions. And yet there was a group of doctors that continued to prescribe opioids um, and did so in a high-risk way. So the authors looked at doctors who were prescribing more than a three-day supply of opioids and more than 50 morphine milligram equivalents, which is sort of a way of, of describing the volume or amount of opioids prescribed, and doctors who were prescribing, um, you know, for example, long-acting formulations and found that um, this group of sort of higher-risk prescribers persisted, and if anything, actually may have slightly increased the number of prescriptions that they were giving out.
0: So what can we say that this article tells us about prescription habits in these five years? What questions does the study leave unanswered for us?
1: Well, again, the the real take-home here is that we can confirm sort of at the individual patient and individual doctor level that first-time opioid prescriptions are declining. Um, And this is probably a good thing, although it doesn't sort of come without some potential consequences for patients already on opioids, which we should talk about. And the importance of um, decreasing the number of first-time opioid prescriptions can't be overstated simply because data have suggested that, particularly among young people, including adolescents and young adults, and this is the time in life in, in which opioid use disorder really has its onset, about 5 to 7% of young people will go on to have a long-term problem with opioids after an initial prescription. And so to the extent to which we can decrease the number of sort of new opioid prescriptions to people who have never had them, we're gonna be making a dent sort of upstream in this public health crisis. Questions that are left unanswered though, we don't know a lot about these sort of um, physicians who continue to prescribe right. in high-risk ways. And you know, to be fair, what we do know is that as the number of physicians out there who are you know, not prescribing opioids sort of declines, there's a number of physicians who are going to be sort of left holding the ball, right? And yeah. so this group that we've sort of labeled as high-risk physicians might actually be the group that sort of has to prescribe higher doses of opioids for the patients who need them since other doctors are no longer willing to do it. And that really speaks to the fact that despite these claims data being very comprehensive, Mm -hmm. we don't know a lot about the indications or sort of the particulars of that patient-doctor interaction that contribute to that um, opioid prescription.
0: And this study really just describes what has been going on in the prescription world. It doesn't tell us what you're talking about, which is what is that relationship and what more those high-risk physicians or those high-risk prescribing physicians are actually doing for their patients. It just gives us numbers and a sense that the prescriptions have been falling. That's Which exactly right. Which is the goal, it sounds like, or it's one piece of a way for how we can address the opioid overdose crisis.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. I would say the other thing that the study left unanswered is we sort of don't know the geographical differences across the United States. And so those declines sort of were observed overall. Um, but there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of what's happening across the United States. And Actually, there was another study that came out in a different journal in around the same time that really looked at these geographic variations and found that particularly in parts of the U.S. southeast, in parts of Appalachia, parts of the Midwest, and also in the U.S. southwest, there really were these regions um, that were already being hit hard by opioid Mm -hmm. overdoses where this sort of um, higher risk prescribing has persisted. And so there may be improvement in some parts of the country, and yet other parts may be lagging behind.
0: Okay. So in describing these studies, you've talked about high-risk prescribing practices. You've talked about the different geographic areas that have been disproportionately affected by the availability of opioids. So what are current public health measures in place to reduce opioid prescribing? What did we actually see from 2012 to 2017 and what's persisted?
1: There have been a lot of different strategies, and I think clearly some of them have worked based on the data that we've just discussed. First of all, I think everybody can agree that in the practice of medicine, there's been a sort of change in awareness or a bit of a culture change around going from a period of time where we felt as though pain was the fifth vital sign. It was cruel and unusual to not treat pain. We should use opioids. If you're using opioids for pain, you can't get addicted. You know, that messaging has really changed. In fact, the pendulum has swung to the exact opposite side. And, you know, we should discuss whether or not that's even appropriate, um, But regardless, there's been a changing awareness in the culture of medicine, and probably much of this is to do with an awareness of the public health crisis, also some specific education around safe prescribing that has become uh, commonplace. And then there have been some of the other interventions that you mentioned earlier on, like prescription drug monitoring programs, where doctors are required to make sure that their patients aren't receiving multiple prescriptions from different prescribers. There are sometimes strict requirements for when um, patients can be prescribed opioids through use of tools like prior authorizations. Again, that may or may not be a good approach. And uh, in some extreme cases, some states have actually targeted physicians who prescribe more than their colleagues. Um, and again, you know, I think there probably are some physicians out there who are engaging in behaviors that are concerning, but Many people might just be physicians who are legitimately prescribing high doses of opioids to patients who need them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think all of these interventions are double-edged swords. And, you know, I think as we think about the extent to which these interventions are effective, I did say that it's important to reduce the number of initial opioid prescriptions, but actually there was a recent study that looked at sort of all these various opioid-related interventions. And this included preventive measures, like Mm -hmm. some of the ones we've discussed, included strategies like distribution of naloxone, the overdose reversal agent, expanding treatment. And what this study uh, found, and it was led by Dr. Chan at Penn State, but in partnership with folks from Massachusetts General Hospital, is that restricting access to prescription opioids is probably only likely to reduce overdose deaths by about 3 to 5% in the next um, six or seven years. And so that's not really a likely um, helpful short-term strategy. It may be effective in the long term for reasons that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. about preventing youth from having access to first-time prescriptions. But again, this is really a double-edged sword.
0: Right. And that's actually segued right into a question that I wanted to get at, which is we've seen these Opioid prescriptions falling, but does that really mean that it's also plateauing with the opioid crisis? Kind of where does that lead us into the trajectory of how the opioid epidemic is continuing to unravel? Um, So you seem to be saying that, yes, the study shows that physicians overall prescribing less, but that doesn't necessarily translate into less addiction, fewer overdoses. That's only part of the piece of the puzzle that we're talking about in terms of the entire opioid epidemic.
1: That's right. I mean, it it is a great big puzzle with a lot of necessary pieces if we're going to decrease the crisis. Massachusetts is interesting because it is a state that actually has managed to level. It's opioid-related overdoses, um, and other states have been able to accomplish this as well in recent years. And it hasn't been from limiting the supply of prescription opioids. That's been perhaps a piece, mm-hmm. um, potentially for young people. But actually, the data really suggests that right now, in the short term, what we need, particularly since fentanyl and heroin are, you know out there, potent and highly lethal, particularly in combination with other substances that are out there. Um, What we really need is stronger access to treatment so that we can reduce the number of people who are seeking opioids in the first place. And then we need stronger harm reduction, recognizing that some people aren't ready to engage in treatment and that harm reduction helps keep them alive while we continue to build relationships with them that might one day result in them receiving treatment.
0: And is that what you think has driven the Massachusetts kind of plateau in terms of the overdose rates in the state? more so than prescription monitoring programs and things like that?
1: Almost inevitably, yes. I think Massachusetts has really led the country in a lot of ways. There are other states doing fantastic work as well. Mm-hmm. But really, it has come down to expanding access to evidence-based treatment and doing so in as equitable a way as possible.
0: Excellent. Awesome. And I think that's really important for trainees to know as well, because I think oftentimes as a trainee, I mentioned that I was a resident not too long ago, um, You suddenly, after medical school, become able to prescribe narcotics. And we've been trained, and as you said, the paradigm has shifted in the sense that we're afraid to prescribe them. We don't want to be the person to give that person the initial prescription that's going to set off an addiction. And I think understanding the harm reduction programs in your state and in your area and the resources that are available to your patients is really important. I wanted to take this back to the trainees, though, because we are not specialists. We are still learning our systems, and we're still trying to understand the resources we have to patients. But one of the things that we are learning is how to safely initiate prescriptions and what um, kind of approaches to take when we're starting to initiate prescriptions of narcotics, especially in this climate. So at this point, I want to talk about practical approaches for pain management in this era. So I want to talk about prescribing in two different kind of scenarios. So we've talked both about patients that have never had opioid prescriptions and also patients who have. Had been exposed to opioids in the sense of a patient comes to you and they're in pain. What approaches do you have for trainees in the setting of a patient who has never had opioids before?
1: Well, my central one overriding message for trainees is that, as I said before, the pendulum has swung a lot in the last uh, 15 years. So, you know, we went from a place where we were prescribing opioids quite liberally to really in the last, you know, seven years clamping down on opioid Mm -hmm. prescriptions. And I think the pendulum has probably swung too far. I think the sensible response is to recognize that opioids have a place in the practice of medicine. And the pendulum probably should be somewhere right in the middle, right? That we can and should prescribe opioids, but when we do so, we should do so in a thoughtful and safe way. And so what makes sort of a safe and thoughtful opioid prescription? Well, I mentioned before that Typically, after a first time opioid prescription, about five to seven percent of people will go on to have a long-term problem with that opioid. So it's worth remembering that the contrary to that is that ninety three to ninety five percent of people will not go on to have a long-term problem with opioids. So what our duty is is to try to understand and prevent that five to seven percent. And so um, here, where I think the strategies lie is, again, being very thoughtful about what we do. so First of all, for mild and and even some cases of moderate pain, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, when dosed appropriately, have been shown in randomized clinical trials to have comparable pain-relieving effects compared to opioids. So we should start with those. And even taking a step backwards, non-pharmacologic approaches can also be tried, and particularly in combination with NSAIDs or um, acetaminophen can be even more amplifying in their pain-relieving properties. So We should think about hot packs, cold packs, relaxation techniques, um, massage, ensuring patients are receiving physical therapy, um, particularly for more chronic issues. So there's lots we can do before we even step to an opioid. Mm -hmm. If an opioid is needed, some things to consider include the following. First of all, you want to do an assessment of that patient's risk factors. So do they have a history of another substance use disorder? Do they have unaddressed mental health concerns like depression or anxiety that they should be connected to treatment for? Do they have a family history of addiction that may place them at excess risk? And then after you've done that, do your due diligence. Check the prescription drug monitoring program um, just to make sure the patient hasn't received opioids elsewhere. And then when you do prescribe an opioid, use the lowest effective dose of opioids to capture that patient's pain. Use a short-acting formulation rather than a long-acting formulation of opioids. And do so at a reasonably short duration. Um, for many types of acute pain, three days of opioids may be all that's necessary. And the excessive supply of unused opioids contributes to our national problem. And then when you prescribe an opioid, ensure that there's close follow-up. And for minors, you know, our practice is to notify their parents and talk to them about safe storage of opioids, like observing Absolutely. all of the doses that go in, um, keeping the medication locked up so it's safe. And you know, I'll often be frank with patients and just talk about the potential risks of opioids, but then also highlight to them that you know, the data suggests that the vast majority of people actually won't go on to have a problem with opioids.
0: And this is your approach in general for pain. So if a patient does have a history of use, substance use, or a family history of opioid use, or do you have any specific other recommendations?
1: Yeah, If somebody does have a history of opioid use, I don't know that the approach needs to differ much from what I said uh, just now, but there is an opportunity to actually just have a careful conversation with the patient about how that opioid was beneficial. You know, in what ways did it help treat their pain? What was the dose? What was the medication? And have a conversation with them about how much medication they needed and what would be excessive, because there may be a way to draw on the experience that they've had, to actually give them a better tailored opioid prescription that is safe. And this that I'm about to say is not evidence-based, but it's something I do in my own practice. Sure. I'll often talk to patients and ask them, because I work with young people, I'll say, did you notice anything different when you took that opioid for the first time? In my clinical practice, where I work with a lot of youth struggling with opioid use mm-hmm. disorder, they'll often tell me that the first time that they had either an opioid off the street or a prescription opioid for a medical problem that they felt something that Mm -hmm. right from the very first time they experienced an opioid, they felt a deep sense of relaxation, of belonging, um, as though, you know, sort of a, a, a painful cloud had been lifted for them.
0: I see. And in those situations, what's your next step after if a patient discloses that to you or tells that to you in terms of managing their pain?
1: Well, again, I think for patients who describe that, I think it's important to understand, do they have problems with other substances? Are they at very high risk of developing an opioid use disorder? Um, But again, all patients deserve equitable and fair pain relief. And so I think that you can still prescribe an opioid even in these high-risk situations, but again, do so in a very careful, thoughtful way that limits the potential harm and do so with very close follow-up. Right.
0: Close follow-up, I think, is very important in this For all patients that you're prescribing high risk medications, no matter if they're opioids or other kinds of medications. And you want to make sure that you're treating the reason they came in. So, follow up is key in any clinical scenario. So, it makes sense that you can just transfer that onto this high risk scenario as well. Right. So, you work at Boston University School of Medicine, you um, work with trainees. What guidance are we giving trainees in terms of treating acute pain? I think you've kind of gone into some of those approaches, but are there other Public health measures or larger training programs that you see as we watch the pendulum swing Mm -hmm. um, in terms of
1: pain management? Well, we're getting better. We still have a lot of work to do, but we're getting better. Increasingly, what we're seeing, one of the hats that I wear Mm -hmm. is actually as an associate program director for the pediatric residency program at Boston Medical Center and Boston Children's Hospital. And increasingly, what we're seeing is that the principles that I just described about safe prescribing are being introduced into medical school curricula, residency curricula, um, and in some cases are being required by licensing boards. So we're seeing that, that this is really sort of becoming standard of care and that this education is expanding and extending all over medicine at multiple levels of training. An example of a high quality program that talks to or teaches doctors how to prescribe opioids appropriately is uh, the Scope of Pain module, uh, which is available nationally. Um, And another good source for training is the NEJM Knowledge Plus series that was just released a few weeks ago that has a special module on pain control and on opioid management. I think all of this is critical and we need to forge forward with this work. But maybe just as important is for us to expand in medical training, teaching about addiction. Mm -hmm. Because I think the fear around prescribing opioids is really a fear of I don't know how to manage addiction if this patient develops a problem. And so to the extent that we can identify addiction early among people and make sure that people get connected to evidence-based treatment and have access to Mm evidence-based treatment, I think physicians will again feel more comfortable prescribing opioids because they'll be able to address what might happen in that, you know, what they view as probably the worst-case scenario. Right,
0: yeah, absolutely. So we talk about acute pain. I think chronic pain could probably be a whole other podcast episode and has its own set of challenges as well. Are there specific trainings or guidance that you yourself or you see um, other people giving trainees in terms of chronic pain?
1: Mm-hmm. The same education modules that I just mentioned, Scope of Pain, and AGM uh, Knowledge Plus, both do address uh, chronic pain to some extent and, and are really good evidence-based sources for education on these topics. As we think about how to treat people with chronic pain. I think the, the really critical piece right now, and this was actually highlighted in the New England Journal, mm-hmm. the thing that is occurring now is that as physicians have become more fearful of treating chronic pain with opioids, in large part in response to a 2016 guideline for the management of chronic pain put out by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, mm-hmm. as physicians have become sort of more fearful of using opioids for chronic pain, We have seen exactly what the study we just described transpire, and that is that fewer and fewer doctors are willing to give out an opioid prescription at all, and that leaves patients without a source for opioids. And in many cases, patients with chronic pain have been stable on stable doses of opioids for years and years, and those opioids help them to function.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And just being on long-term opioids or a high dose of opioids does not equate to addiction. The diagnosis of opioid use disorder really involves loss of control around use of opioids, Mm -hmm. dysfunction in your daily life as a result of opioids. And for many patients with chronic pain stably on opioids, they don't meet those criteria. And we've heard really disastrous uh, reports of people who have been cut off of their opioids that they've been stable on and either having to turn to the street to buy um, street-based narcotics to, uh, in some cases, experience acute mental health problems, in some cases, suicide. And so as we think about the use of opioids in chronic pain, we have to remember, again, the pendulum has swung too far, and we need to be mindful and thoughtful of patients' experiences.
0: So we've talked a lot about opioid prescription habits. We've talked a lot about kind of the landscape of opioid overdose epidemic as it relates to prescribers and patients and how trainees are being taught Guidance that we can give them moving forward. What are some of the big takeaways of this conversation that our listeners should really bring home?
1: Well, I think actually the overriding thing that I would say is that thinking about opioids, thinking about prescribing them for acute and chronic pain, thinking about the potential risk that they pose for addiction, as we think about these very complex issues and we navigate um, turbulent waters, Mm. the things that we know about good medicine hold more true than ever we need to have thoughtful conversations with our patients. We need to listen to them and understand their experiences. Mm-hmm. We need to ask them about their histories. We need to be compassionate when we think about what is the right thing for the patient in front of me. And we need to strive to be better physicians by continuing to learn, keeping up to date on evidence-based practices, which are evolving at a rapid pace.
0: Again, Dr. Hadlin, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about pain management and safer prescribing for opioids, you can access our free online training at knowledgeplus.nejm.org. Through over 60 case-based questions, you will learn about assessments and management of acute and chronic pain, the current guidelines and the appropriate use of opioids for pain management, and evidence-based strategies for recognizing and treating opioid use disorder. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks, as always, to Dr. Angela Chen and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-editorial fellows at NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. hammond As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at NEJM.org, or you can leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts. We're also accessible on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via NEJM.org pages. I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos, editorial fellow at NEJM. Please join us for our next episode of Curbside Consults.